Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Carlito's Way starring Al Pacino, Sean Penn, Penelope Ann Miller, Written by David Kep, based on the book Carlito's Way and After Hours by Edwin Torres, and directed by Brian De Palma. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. It is November. It is time to start a new film review cast. No more spookies, but we'll come back to the scary stuff at another time. I'm sure. But this one uh, is all about mafia movies, the mob genre, a really celebrated genre in film history. Uh, did, did we come up with a name for this one? Turf War. Yeah, there you go. That, ooh, I love it. Yeah. And up first from 1993, Carlito's Way. This is our third time talking about Mr. Brian De Palma. And as we were kind of just discussing after watching, yeah, I think we could probably talk about him nine more times. It's funny that he's got his own cast by proxy, doesn't he? Excellent. Uh, a new bottle this week. This is Amador Whiskey Company. This is their double barrel. This is a blended bourbon whiskey finished in Chardonnay wine cask. It seemed appropriate for the genre we're getting into. No question about it. <laughs> Are those uh, Corleone Chardonnay uh, <laughs> wine barrels? Yeah. Excellent. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. You definitely find that these wine barreled uh, bourbons are a little on the uh, sweeter side. No question about that. You can sure taste that right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Almost got a little cinnamony taste to that too. There's a vanilla tint in there, coursing through that for me as well. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting an interesting drink there. Never heard never heard of them. I can't even remember where I bought that. I think maybe Total Wine, but. I had never seen it before, so the label the label struck me. Well done. That's a good choice. Excellent. Our question this last week was a lot of responses on our which sequels have taken weird alternative routes. A lot of great choices. Steve or Hey Now, Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. Yeah. Now available, OVC, Bill and Ted Face the Music, which I haven't seen, but you said was not good. It was not good. <laughs> Solid Six Podcast, Highlander 2, The Quickening. Oh, God. Sean Connery, RAP. Uh, Three Shades of K said, does this include TV shows? Because if it does, The Umbrella Academy. <laughs> I haven't checked out that I haven't, season. Yet, I haven't either, but that's, that's not a ringing endorsement. <laughs> no. No. Uh, and then, okay, hang on one second. Uh, let's see here. Steven Katchuk said, Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Signed, sealed, delivered. Our pal, Mr. Brett Reese, said The Lost World, Jurassic Park, and Independence Day Resurgence. The Lost World's an interesting one because if you read the book, it's an entirely different story because I that almost came out like before uh, they could adapt it into the movie. The movie was already in motion, so they couldn't adapt a source material for that. And then uh, Corey Bauman return to the Blue Lagoon. <laughs> That's hilarious. Pretty good. <laughs> That's a good one. Excellent. Thank you uh, to all the listeners. Hit us up on any of the social media platforms. Rice, our email, ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Yeah, thanks for the feedback this week, everybody. That's good stuff. We appreciate it. So let's dive right in uh, to our flight question.
which Casey and the Sunshine Band is most overdue for a remake. And, no, that's not it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, like, I like Casey and the Sunshine. You could have fun with that. And I've seen them before. Like, really? Perform. You have such a interesting swatch of people that you've seen. From the Moody Blues to Casey and the Sunshine Band, there's no shortage of interesting participants in your yeah, live music. I got to thank my parents for those ones. That's so, great. Yeah, no, it was, I had a great time watching them. I'm sure. Excellent. Why don't you hit us with that flight question? So um, I like pairings in gangster films. And I think an important piece of that is who goes along with the Don or the leader. So we'll take a little bit of liberty. And I know that per the letter of the law, maybe that's not quite what this film is. Like it's not essentially Godfather-esque, but it's close Mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. So the question then is around that space. Take any two characters that have yet to be cast in a mafia turf war scenario mafia movie. And I want leading gangster and his mall from any era Mm -hmm. of any place. Your three couples. I'll let you have the first one. Okay. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to go with some acting powerhouses here just because I'd love to see the two of them share the screen. I'm going to go Daniel Day-Lewis and then his counterpart in that film, Miss Meryl Streep. That'd be a really good one. Yeah. That'd be a really good one. (laughs) Give that film all the Oscars already. No kidding. (laughs) Okay. So I'll go a bit more younger in blood. Okay. But I'm going to go with Mark Strong and Camilla Mendez. Ooh, interesting. I think she presents a great opportunity to showcase, and I'm not a Riverdale fan, I have to admit. I barely know that, mm-hmm. but I certainly know who she is, and I think she is ready if people want to give her the right role. And sure. I just love Mark Strong, and in that role, I think he could slay. Excellent. That's my three. Number, that, you're number two. My number two. Uh, I know he was in a mob movie, but he wasn't like the Don. Um, the, the film's Road to Perdition, and that's that's a Paul Newman gangster movie. Frank Nitty. Yeah. But uh, the actors, Tom Hanks. Would be, I've heard of him. Yes. <laughs> See, he's new, right? Is he a new actor? <laughs> but he's never played like like a Don mob boss before, which would be interesting. I like it. Opposite him, I want Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, wow. That, that seems like an odd pairing. Like that wouldn't kind of go well, but I think Jamie Lee Curtis would bring that fiery side that the mall needs in that role. Mm-hmm. And I just want to see Tom Hanks in a role that he we haven't seen him in before. So, Do you want... Jamie Lee Curtis today, Jamie Lee Curtis, or do you want to take her back to where she's not quite, and I mean this respectfully, but not quite as gray? Um, No, maybe today. Okay, take her now. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to go with the couple that I'm dying to see eventually. Someone is going to cast these two, and I'm going to be happy. It's Clooney and Lively. Mm. You want, mentioned them before on noir. the two you wanted to see in a Tarantino film, too. Quentin Tarantino and, I'm sorry, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, George Clooney and Blake Lively are dying to make a movie in my head. And enough said there. That would just be uh, a dream come true for me. Of course, then it'd probably turn out like serendipity. And, <laughs> and somehow that worked its way in. And this, we had a 2020. All right. <laughs> that's number, that's for number one. Um, okay, Matt, I'm going to flip the roles on you here. Mm. Okay. So I don't think there's been a lot of mob movies that have had like the female kind of running the show behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, I'd really like to see that. And maybe I'm just thinking of a film like Molly's Game. Uh, but I want Jessica Chastain in that role. And then I want her to share the screen with someone who she's shared the screen with three other times already. But they work well together. And that's James McAvoy. It's terrific. Uh, I think she's just such a strong female presence on screen. So to see her take the reins of inheriting a family's business, um, 
so take the Godfather route and everyone gets wiped out and then it's Connie having to run the show. That's the film I want to see. She comes up a lot for you. Mm -hmm. Is she one of your five favorites right now? Definitely. Oh, yeah. I kicked her around with Daniel Day-Lewis, as a matter of fact, for a couple, but I didn't go Mm -hmm. there. I love that. I want to see that pairing, too. Yeah. I like Molly's game. That was that was a that does kind of fits that realm of almost mob mobby type of movies. When we finished the slasher cast that we just did, the terrible twos, and you said I want you to kind of build the next one. Mm-hmm. We had talked about this one, but the other one I was kicking around involved gambling. And I wanted to do the Mark Wahlberg film and maybe that film and Rounders would be the three that I'd kind of played with. We'll put that in the queue. I want to do that film too. Yeah. I think that's tragically underrated. That's a great film and she's, she's great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, my number one. Yes. Liam Neeson and Maggie Siff. I'm unfamiliar with Maggie Siff. What, 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 what would I? Sons of Anarchy. Okay. Um, she's got quite a few other titles. What's the one that she's got a uh, billions, I think is the one she's on okay. now. Um, Ooh, Liam Neeson too. Liam yeah. Neeson is the Don and Maggie Siff is his, his mall. Uh, I, I'm going to admit, I love Maggie Siff. Okay. So it's biased, but that's okay. I also love Liam Neeson. So all of those choices were biased, weren't they? I would love to see, not that Liam Neeson is not good at that, like, elderly action star. He's kind of jump-started that craze with Taken. I want to see him do a film like that, like a little more cerebral, a little more intense, because he's got the chops to do it. I think that's one genre that allows an aged male to still be credible with the younger female. Cause it plays on money and power and all of those things. Certainly Liam Neeson is significantly older than Maggie Siff, mm-hmm. but it plays in the space where I think the mall might be interested in the guy for things other than the aesthetic of male beauty. I think in your, your choices, you definitely went that regard with kind of how Carlito's way goes. Yeah. In my reasoning for the people I picked, I almost picked female counterparts that would kind of be like really into the mob game with their husbands, like willing to go take a bullet for them or go do the hit themselves, like really fully involved in the business versus a Diane Keaton and outside looking in. What's that Jessica Chastain film about prohibition with... um? Oh, oh uh, Ed, Ed, Wallace. Ed. Yeah, Lawless. Mm-hmm. Do you like that film? Yeah, that one's pretty good. I like that one too. Tom Hardy. There you go. Yeah. Great choice. I, I, I love that. Let's uh, cast this. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's do it. Yeah, good job. I like yours too. Excellent. Well, are you ready? Let's, let's head to 1975's New York and let's get to our review breakdown of Carlito's Way. Here we go. Okay, Even? Look even to me. Come on, Kikaya, bro. What news? Your boss is dead and someone I can't wait to talk about that sequence coming up, but first let's start at the beginning or... As in the beginning is the end. What is this, a Smashing Pumpkins song? No, it's the film. <laughs> <laughs> Carlito's Way starts out with the end of the film, which is Carlito kind of getting gunned down at the end and then kind of supplying us with some voiceover. Now, Matt, I want to ask you just right off the bat, do you like seeing the conclusion of the film at the beginning and part A, point B to this question? Does this voiceover work in the film for you? 
The answer is yes and no. Okay. The voiceover works because there is that element that's played out the rest of the film. And a lot of it has to do with him letting the audience know about the angles that he's working in his mind. <clears throat> and that's certainly if there's a superpower or an ability to Carlito Brigante, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. I think this gives a little bit too much. And I think we know where we're headed ultimately. And for me, that rounds the edges of conflict a little too much. There might be some obscurity. You could still do that. I just don't want to see him take the three shots and then kind of slump down on the gurney. And then the one that really finishes it off as we drive out or he wheels out looking at the, you know, paradise silhouetted advertisement on the, you know, paneling above him. Yeah. How about you? Do they drop him in the gurney or does it get caught on some steps? It definitely bounces. Yeah. It's almost like it, like it catches and he like kind of falls. I know, a, you, I know you like bookends. Is this a, like, where is this for you? I'm going to go no and no on the, this question. Okay. Um, I think the end, if we had, we, the way the film builds up to it, I mean, the last 20 minutes is a really great suspenseful sequence by De Palma. I think it would be capped off really well by this kind of shocking, oh, he didn't quite make it, but because we've already kind of been teased with that a little bit, it kind of kills the ending for me just a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the voiceover is interesting. I don't know if this film necessarily kind of needs it, and maybe it's just the way it kind of reads off and it maybe seemed like an afterthought, bringing Pacino back after they had finished filming to kind of come do this ADR voiceover. I don't. It just doesn't fit the, the movie. And we're going to talk about voiceover a lot coming up in this cast. Yeah, we are. Uh, I don't think it fits this film in particular. Unless De Palma was going for a, no, a noir vibe. That, um, that. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know. I guess you can make the case that this might be a little bit more crime drama than traditional mafia. So maybe, I guess there's an argument there, and if that's what he's going for, then that would excuse the voiceover. It doesn't bother me being in his head as much as it does you. I just don't want to know what happens at the end. I hate anything that takes a story and turns it into known prequel. Yes. And that does this. So it doesn't ruin the film. I'm not, please, I don't even think that. Yeah. It's just not a great first step. Although it's a cool way to sort of present it mm -hmm. black and white in a little slow motion, which is very, very typical De Palma. Oh, I was just going to say that. I was like, this is a total De Palma opening credits sequence. Think of Carrie in the shower and sure. it's very dreamlike and slow motion. And yeah. that's kind of what this is too. That's good, right? It's not even sepia toned. It's uh, lavender toned. <laughs> yeah. It's like almost purpley blue. Yeah. Uh, this, this kind of haze that he's in. But we go back to 1975's New York as uh, Carlito Brigante is uh, kind of being freed of his 30-year prison sentence uh, on a legal technicality. Now, his lawyer, his representation is Mr. David Kleinfeld, played by by Sean Penn. Uh, Sean Penn's something else in this movie, and maybe it's just because of his, his appearance. Uh, he's got this, like, crazy perm and the glasses and his the outfits he wears. I mean, he's just... Overly ridiculous, this entire film. When I watch him in this, I always think of American Hustle. Mm, and you and I have mm. gone to task on that film with its just plunging neckline and the cleavage is so much there that it just is almost distracting from the semi-plot that that movie tried to spin. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a wire. Yep. There's your movie for you. For me, I think that Kleinfeld could fall easily into that same criticism. But because, and you brought it up, because the hair that Kleinfeld has is actually Sean Penn's hair. Mm -hmm. It's not makeup. It's actual schmarmy looking mm -hmm. because with that hair, he is. 
I think it's perfectly cast. Mm. And when I consider what Sean Penn was from Spicoli to Milk to this, there's a very talented actor right there. Mm -hmm. That's a complete asshole. Yeah. In real life. The guy's a total douchebag. I told you my dad was on a plane with him one time and short man. It's like five foot two, three. (laughs) And not that I'm carrying water for Madonna, but if you even go back to those early period, like the guy's out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it fits. And I almost wonder if it fits because maybe it's a little close to home. Sure. I mean, he's playing a really shysta lawyer uh, who's a backstabber at the end of this film. Let's talk about the look of it for a minute, if we can. The look of the film? You brought up something to me, yes, that I thought was really telling in this. It's hard not to draw some similarities between this film and The Untouchables. One of the things that's really remarkable at The Untouchables is that it was wardrobed by Giorgio Armani. Oh, yeah, everyone's to the nines. It looks immaculate. Mm -hmm. This movie, in its own way, does the same thing. Yeah, you and I won two separate suits that Al Pacino wore in this film. Oh, my gosh, (laughs) the brown one that he's presenting his case to the judge when he's trying to get paroled. Yeah. And then that black one at Kleinfeld's party are just masterpieces. Mm -hmm. But really, everybody and the way they're clothed in this film, with the exception of Gail. Yeah. Gail's like... Uh, this no, no, hang on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she is uh, Greta Garbo esque yeah. from the 1930s Hollywood. Think about the opportunity. So it works with Penn. It works with uh, Louis. What's it, Louis uh, Guzman? Yes, great as that role mm-hmm. in every movie that he's always in. Yeah, it works with every, like um, Viggo Mortensen, John Leguizamo. Mm-hmm. What I think is a bit of a miss, and it sticks out like a sore thumb to me, is the way he chooses to depict Gale because he has essentially a walking mannequin to use. Mm-hmm. I don't want plunging necklines and evening gown wear that they had in American hustle, but I don't think she's costumed appropriately for what the rest of the film does. Unless mm-hmm. they're trying to show that she is so beaten down and so tired <laughs> and so at her wits end that she just doesn't give a damn, but that doesn't jive. Mm-hmm with the rest of her character in the film. And it seems strange, but if anyone chooses to watch this film, ask yourself, is what she's wearing? And the scenes where she's not wearing anything kind of don't work either. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. She, I can't, I I can't reconcile if it's, I don't like her. I don't think it's, I don't like her. Mm -hmm. If there's no chemistry, if she's depicted poorly on screen, I'm not sure what it is. Like we talked about it. Why isn't that Nicole Kidman? Yeah. Or why isn't that? Who else we bring up? Um, you said Diane Lane. Diane Lane. Mm-hmm. Why isn't that? I said Michelle Pfeiffer. All those work. Mm-hmm. And we're certainly playing in the Scarface territory. So let's not be, you know, too, too worried about using the same people. Everyone does that. Mm-hmm. It's re- it, I think it's all around it. It just, it doesn't get there and it ends up being a bit distracting. Not a bit, quite a bit distracting for me. What about you? What do you think about the look of the clothes and the the aesthetic? Of I this? love it. I love the the design of it because it, you could come dangerously close to recreating Scarface. And I don't think you want to do that. Um, but it's enough of that 70s kind of club attire um, with uh, everything just is so silky. You know what I mean? The, the shirts, uh, the facial hairs on point. Platform it's, shoes. Platform, like, yeah, bell bottoms. Like, everything, like, looks, like, really good. Uh, you know, I, I dig, I like the lighting. Is You get a lot of neons in, in this particular film, a lot of reds, blues. That all really works for me. Uh, now, what's interesting about this, and, you know, this is um, 
Turf War. Oh, the mob cask. This is a very it's it's a, a very structurally different uh, mob film because when you kind of break down uh, Carlito's kind of end game, he ends up investing in this club with with Kleinfeld, and only the only thing he wants to make is his seventy five thousand, and then he's gone. He's not trying to run some criminal empire, a family business to take control of the city. He wants to get his little slice, head off to the Bahamas, and was it Ford Pintos? And rent those out to to tourists and just kind of live the beach life. I mean, go legit. Simple enough. I, I like that about this movie that it's not a it's not a Scarface where I'm gonna it's, it's this rags to riches story and I'm gonna roll all the way up to the top to go all the way down to the bottom. It's it's a very simple seven and it's not even a big amount of money for like a mob film seventy k and I'm gone. Which he said is gonna be three months. When we first meet Carlito Brigante, we see him in the courtroom, and we think he's spinning quite a hustle yarn to the judge to get to beat the rap essentially and, and get off of what I think is thirty years. Mm-hmm. He does so. And you can see in the moment, he's pretty good on his feet. He's pretty quick. He's pretty witty. And he's certainly charming. What ends up playing out, though, from that is maybe that actually wasn't a hustle. Maybe that was the hustle necessary to engage in the legitimate hustle, which is renting out Ford Pintos to people who want to use cars in the Bahamas to drive around. I think when he says, I'm ready to go straight, and the way that he avoids the street as best he can until it pulls him back in. Every time I get out of oh, the wrong movie. Yeah. But I believe him. Me too. Yeah. He's actually, I think, trying to be a legitimate contributing member to society. And I think it's problematic for him in that opening clip that I played when he goes with his his cousin. Yeah. Yeah. To go uh, do a money exchange. And the way he kind of sets the scene and observes kind of what the hell's going on in this little dive bar He's like, oh, God, like that Godfather line, like I'm back in it and I don't want to be back in it. So you kind of see his survival instincts kind of come into play. There's a scene later on in the film after he gets back together with Gail where he essentially explains to her how he came to the place that he is. What I like in her response, that was hard on her earlier, but what I think works in that scene is he goes through this tale of romanticized street level um, code that leaves him how he got to where he was. And Gail's response is essentially get in line, Mm -hmm. which is true. That's everybody. How you got there is how you got there. You're not special. Mm -hmm. You're just a human. So he's assigned this, like, I don't want to say cosmic, but street level mystical significance to the code of the street. Mm -hmm. And in this opening scene, you can see how those skills, even dulled in prison, are still acute enough to when he walks into that dive bar, he picks up on that door that's cracked open in the men's bathroom mm-hmm. right away. Like he's ankling the minute he gets in there. It's going to be consistent throughout the whole film. He's able to do that. But what's also consistent is the bullshit mm-hmm. that goes along with that. Yeah. For as much as Sean Penn calls him out in his final scene for that, mm-hmm. he's also right. So he's assigned this very important role in his place with street level nefaria rules honor among thieves, I suppose mm-hmm. that's all bullshit. And if you think about how this film ends, it in fact is bullshit yep. or is it because he misses a very obvious angle that we'll get to. That's a lot. But what I'm saying is in that opening scene, I, we do a good job of watching him <clears throat> set up a place and an, 
a scenario yeah. where there's some outs for him to get away with the skin on his neck. And we've talked a lot about Brian De Palma and how he's this maestro at staging violence on screen, whether that's the prom scene in Carrie or any of the number of the kills or the, the assassination attempt in Blowout. Uh, Train sequence in Untouchables. Yeah, the Odessa steps in Untouchables, which yeah. we kind of get a redo of in this film. Yeah. This scene's great. This is just classic De Palma. Uh, the I like the the reflection in the guy's eyeglasses of the guy running with the knife from uh, side to side. And then we get quick zoom-ins and the gun, and he loves his blood squibs. Amen to him for that. This is a great sequence. The De Palma's just, he's just so good at this. I love it when directors pay homage to people that were influential to them. And that watching the knife bit in the guy's reflections is a direct reference to Hitchcock and Strangers on a Train. Mm-hmm. When you remake Vertigo and you, in Obsession and you remake Psycho to a certain extent, like, and then you pay another homage to it with Screwed Up Moms and Carrie, I love that too. Because it looks cool. It's interesting. And we've seen that several times. And I did mention you know, seeing that in Strangers on a Train, but there's another similar sequence to that in Notorious mm-hmm. where we're watching the horses run through the binoculars. And, um, oh, yeah. It's, in the, right? It's just like that. So... I like that. And you know what? It works for a reason. Who's above a little bit of theft disguised as homage? And Brian De Palma's really good at that because where he's going to be avant-garde and unique is in the way you said he depicts his own violence. Mm-hmm. So well done. And this scene's that that two letter. So he's yeah, so he's gonna going about, you know, running this club or, or this club, trying to make it trying to go legit. And then like just every time he looks around the corner, there's just like someone who's like there to bring him down. Mm-hmm. And then there's Vigo Mortensen. Look at me. This is how you beat your 30 years, no. huh? Piece of shit. Let me explain. I'll kill you. I'll push you in the fucking river. What the fuck is going on, Galito? No, no. Wait a minute. Wait a fucking second. Wait, Wait a minute. You fucking... a fucking chiva, man? No, I see. Let me. You please. fucking rabbit. Let me, please. Please. Let me fucking kill him, man. Let me oh, fuck oh, Galito, man. Oh, let him let fucking me. kill me. Oh, fuck oh, you. Oh, oh, kill me, oh, you I mean, look at me. You got everything, man. I mean, come on. Look what I got to fucking go around with. Fucking diapers, man. I got fucking diapers. I shit my pants every day. I can't walk. I can't hump. <laughs> you know? Oh, go. Like, you can have first swing at this one. Go. Oh, yeah. I don't know. It's, I don't buy Vigo as a Puerto Rican gangster uh, rat. No, <laughs> that he's trying to kind of betray here. It's just too silly. But um, what it does set up is the guys that are just in this arena. They're just trying to bring him wearing a wire to kind of like, what's this Carlito up to now that he's out of the slammer? Is he selling drugs? Is he doing nefarious activities in his new club? And it's none of that. He's just trying to go legit. He's like not doing any of that. couple things, though. He knows that he has a wire. He's ahead in the game of chess. He's a couple moves ahead of Laline. And then the other thing is another obvious miss on who this could have been. From Isai Morales to you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that was a great choice. And I can remember seeing this in the theater thinking, boy, that's a very, very distracting piece. And I'm into the movie at this point. We're probably an hour in, maybe an hour and 10 minutes into it. In the theater, sitting there like, God, that doesn't play at all. Yeah. 
That's a and sm- you can see it. Like, it's actually kind of a cool part. And he's got he's got some pretty good dialogue. I can't hump like that. Mm-hmm. It's it works, but sort of badly because <clears throat> I don't know if Vigo's Puerto Rican accent is the best. He's a good actor. It's just he is. It's just not a good part for him. It's not. So that's a miss for, for, for Carlito's way. Right. But he does set up. So we've established this girl from Carlito's past named Gail, played by Penelope Piana, Ann Miller. Penelope. Yep. And uh, he's kind of let her know that, yeah, I saw her at this this club or this strip club. And so that sense. And he's already been doing his own stocking game by like following her on the streets and watching her from the, from the distance. And they've had a, an encounter. But. As we kind of like the chemistry isn't quite there, like on the screen between these two. Uh, maybe it could have been cast with somebody else, but it leads him to this club where she he kind of realizes like what she's really kind of making a living doing, which is stripping. This whole and a film like this has to have like this kind of element, or maybe not. I don't know. Um, but you're you're mob guy your carlito is as strong as like your lorraine brocco in goodfellas like you that needs to be equally strong for that to work on screen and i think that's another miss from this film not that like we said uh, penelope ann miller was one of my first crushes because i as i've told you before i used to rent the shadow with alec baldwin at least 30 to 40 times uh, those 50 cent rentals. And that's her. She's the lead. She plays Margot Lane. I mean, this is one of the first like really beautiful women I ever got to, to see on screen. So it's, it's not her. And she's a, 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 a very fine actress, but between her and Pacino, and we discussed, is this Pacino post scent of a woman doing a caricature of himself? And it kind of is. There's moments mm-hmm. where you can see, I'm not going back to prison. I just have to emote. Mm-hmm. And sadly, I think one of the better actors in my oh of all time Mount Rushmore of actors mm-hmm. has become what you just said. And I haven't watched that show where he's the head of the Nazi hunting division on TV and whatever the hell it is. I haven't watched that, but mm-hmm. mostly because I think for everything that Scent of a Woman did for him, and especially that final scene where they are at the hearing. And essentially, what won him an Academy Award, long overdue, by the way. That end sequence is almost dovetailed into this Every, film. Everything else he does, yeah. He gets to that space, and it is so aggro and so, uh, gosh, almost violent mm-hmm. in a melodramatic way, mm-hmm. theater-like. That I'm not sure he's ever able to dial it back to Michael Corleone. You got to think of the maybe not a better. Uh, s- run of films than Pacino had in the in the 70s. Now, before Godfather, he did a film I really like called The Panic in Needle Park, which mm-hmm. is a heroin overdose mm-hmm. movie. Yep. Then you do Godfather 1, Serpico, Godfather Dog, Part 2. Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Like, my God. Killing yeah, it. Yeah, mm-hmm. just slaying it. And he's great in all of that stuff. All of them. Mm-hmm. And those never brought home any hardware. Oh, it's a shame. Which is a... A travesty. Yeah, that's that's an Academy theft there. Okay, so he gets it, but he gets it in a role that wasn't any of those. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with range. You should have range. Mm-hmm. The problem is that range that locked him down with the blind guy that is what he is in Scent of a Woman, Frank, um, whatever the hell's, sorry, Frank um, Slade, mm-hmm. ends up being everything he is going forward 
you're watching in a strange way. I think the end of the last little bit. Now we can talk about heat because Pacino's a bit different in heat. But if you watch heat, we're still kind of playing in that same space, that heavy, heavy emote over the top role, right? I would love to do heat. Well, Michael Mann himself. Oh, like Michael Mann cast, yeah. Michael Mann doing Al Pacino as the lead. You're just going to be mm-hmm. all in. Okay, so when you consider Al Pacino and Brian De Palma at this place, I think we talked about it too. It's the beginning of a downward slope, sadly. For both of them. For both of them. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a long answer to the question of like, how does Gail work on screen? And this is kind of an overly long movie for me, 225. Uh Two hours and twenty-five minutes. I think a lot of the dead time is spent with the two of these these two characters, just kind of bouncing back and forth between sequences. Okay, so you said it. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question. Okay, because there is a lot of time that is watching that relationship be rekindled. Mm-hmm. Give me as best you can the way to fix Gale and make those moments, several moments, better for the viewer on screen. Fix Gale. Okay. When those scenes come on, the film just slows to like a snail's pace. Now I would, it's a lot of sitting and talking and we know like this isn't a Tarantino movie where he can kind of get away with that. It's a De Palma film. He works well in high intense situations. So I would like to see a little bit more of that with the two of them. Not a lot of just kind of the door scene that we're going to kind of get to, but, and just kind of sitting around in these clubs and them dance. I want to see more. I want to see more action between the two of the two of them because it's just kind of stale. Isn't she the most boring stripper that we've ever seen on, on screen? <laughs> See, God, that's a, that, that's a way to put it. We yeah. have to, and there's a start there. Mm-hmm. What happened? What happened to your dream? Why are you not dancing in this other way? Like what happened? I don't think she, there ha- is a story. I don't there. think she just has enough active role in the world too, the mob world. Look at a film like Casino where Sharon Stone is in it, in it, in it with Robert De Niro in that film. And she's so good in that. Because I think it's there with him. And what I'm going to argue with everything you said and for what you just said is if you've seen Sea of Love for where that works and where that doesn't, it's there. Mm -hmm. Ellen Barkin is essentially a Gale-like character in that film. You could even go with Pacino and Pfeiffer and Frankie and Johnny. There is moments in his filmography where I think he can accentuate the highlights with a capable female mm-hmm. um, co. I just don't know. Like, it's not it's not Penelope Ann Miller's fault. It's not Al Pacino's fault. There's just no meat on those bones. It feels very Diane Keaton as Kay in The Godfather for me because she isn't an active participant in the mob dealings. Now, it works in The Godfather because there's so much else going on in that movie. Because well, she's, but all right, yes. But you know why? Yeah. Because of the scene where she admits that she's had Michael's child aborted. Nobody gives a crap about Diane Keaton being a teacher. Yeah. It is a bit odd and interesting that the teacher would be with the leader of this crime syndicate. Mm -hmm. But when you take the teacher element out and don't give, I would not bring another Corleone family into this world moment away and Uh, replace it with like, you know, she here, she's a stripper. Mm -hmm. Again, I, it, it's kind of around it, but it's almost so conspicuous that they just mailed it in with her. Yeah, that, that, I think that sounds fair. There's just not enough for her to, to do other than kind of have these scenes with, with Pacino. So this made me think a lot. This is going down another question, but I want to do this with you too. Okay, okay. It's written by David Kep. Yeah. This is a A-list writer. Yeah. 
big stuff on this guy's filmography. I'll go over them in just a minute when you're answering this. I could name two of them to you right now. Go. Jurassic Park and Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man. There is so many of them that, you know, his filmography, it's it speaks to a man that's had a ton of amazing films, tons of them. I mean, we're talking, like you said, those two. Did he do the first Mission Impossible? He did. Yeah. Jurassic Park, Carlito's Way, The Paper, The Shadow, Mission Impossible 2, The Trigger Effect, Snake Eyes, Stir of Echoes, Panic Room, Spider-Man, Secret Window, War of the Worlds, Zathura. Let me ask you this. Crystal Skull. I mean, we go on and on. This guy. Oh, Crystal Skull. Okay, so there's some misses in there, but this is A-list talent. So if if you're Kep, and being that this material, don't forget the question you're going to ask mm-hmm. me because I want to give you this one first mm-hmm. and then I want to hear yours. Mm-hmm. If you're kept and you're adapting this from two source materials. They're really adapting it too from the second novel, which is called After Hours. What you're adapting is a chance. If this is one-to-one, a direct correlation of what the story is, that's not an excuse. Mm-hmm. Because when you adapt it, you have a chance to sour mash what we do in film sometimes every week, and that's fix the parts that are a little bit broken. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't deliver the way Gail is written in the book, then that's a miss. David Kep has the chops to deliver a nice female performance here, but he doesn't. So I'm going to ask you, is Gail a miss by Kep, mm. or is it a miss by Penelope Ann Miller? I'm gonna say Kep. I mean, it's it's not the fault of, of hers. She she's good in the she's good in the movie with what she has to play with. Agreed. Now let me ask you this this one time. <laughs> okay. When you say see David Kep's name on screen, uh, is he a bit a list writer? A lot of hits to his name. We'd be so thankful to have his filmography. Amen. Isn't he a bit a bit vanilla when you see his name come up in the credits as a bit of a vanilla kind of by the books blockbuster writer? Outside of the spelling, absolutely. Okay. The reason because the reason- Jurassic Park that that's a Spielberg vehicle and it has great source material. Spider Man is a Sam Raimi vehicle with great source material. Okay, so we'll find out if what we're hy- what we're posing is correct because he's tied to Indiana Jones five. <sighs> Yeah, I guess we'll find out. So he just did You Should Have Left, which I think is that Kevin Bacon film that's terrible on Netflix. Have you seen it yet? Mm -mm. That horror flick with Amanda Seyfried? Mm -mm. You know what else is his? Mm. The Mummy. Okay, so... Wait, which one? The Tom Cruise one? Seven. So check this out, Jesse. The name K-O-E-P-P is spelled so uniquely it's very recognizable. Had it not been for the recognizable nature of what the spelling in his name is, I would argue myself that his movies would just be lost in the wash of occasional good summer movie, but most time, like you said, vanilla white noise. At an A-list level, yeah. he, he keeps so he, he must turn out really good work, and he must be able to work with the producers that want X, Y, and Z. I so think, there's oh, something I th- I there. I think so. Yeah, I think you hit it. I think he pres- he gives he turns in a very makeable material. And the reason the a Spider-Man Two is so good is because well, Sam Raimi's firing on all cylinders. But then you have Elvin Sargent's fantastic screenplay to that movie. Not David Kep coming back for the sequel. So you know what I mean? I don't know. It's just anytime I see that guy's name, I know him. I know, I know what he looks like, and he's directed. I'm pretty sure he directed Secret Window too. With, yes, he uh, did. Oh my god, uh, it's just almost kind of milk toast, which is kind of not fair with a filmography like that. But just the strengths of those movies, I wouldn't say are in the writing. Okay, so look at it. If we take 
three films, War of the Worlds, Mm -hmm. Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, (laughs) and let me find another one here that'll work, Angels and Demons. Oh, God. (laughs) What you have is sadly what you and I really despise in summer. It's the best shade of Revlon lipstick on a pig, mm-hmm. which makes it palatable. Yeah. So the question then is, is that a recognition of his ability to salvage something, or is that an admonition for selling out on what should be a good idea? Because I'm going to argue something that I think everyone should consider. Mm-hmm. I know 2017's The Mummy Got Killed. That movie does not suck. It's not great, but there is way worse that made way more money than that film. I have a hard time believing that people saw that film, and at least on a summer film in the middle of the hot, hot August weather and a nice dark place were not entertained. Mm -hmm. And also, for everybody that said it wasn't what I thought, you saw the trailer. How do you mean that wasn't what you thought it was going to be? So. I'm not defending that film. Like it's a huge miss. And we've talked about what that destroyed for universal and the dark world and all of those things. But back to the question is kept an example of sellout or salvage. I think salvage. And I think when I I just, to sum him up in just one, I think it's just passable. If it's an Aaron Sorkin film, you know, he brings in that like incredible dialogue and like, he knows how to like make people come alive on screen. I don't get that with kept. You know what I mean? I know his name, but uh, unfortunately, it's kind of just, it's just steeped in, it's okay. And there's a place for that in film. But when we're breaking down the story here, I mean, the strengths of this film aren't in that. Brian De Palma was able to take the screenplay and put his De Palma flair into it. And I think that's why it's it's really so memorable. Hey, Mr. Brigante, it's the second time you turn me down for a drink, man. Well, you don't like my champagne? Hey, it could be. I don't know, maybe it's a misfucking understanding here. I don't know, man. Maybe you don't remember me. My name is maybe Benny Maybe I Blanco. don't give a shit. Maybe I don't remember the last time I blew my nose either. Who the fuck are you? I should remember you. Huh? What, you think you like me? You ain't like me, motherfucker. You a punk. I've been with made people. Connected people. Who you been with? Chain snatching. Jive ass. Modicum motherfuckers. <laughs> Why don't you get lost? Go ahead, snatch your purse. Come on, take a fucking walk. No, I think the only problem here is that Steffi doesn't know where she belongs. Come on, Steffi, let's go. Steffi belongs here. That's where she belongs. I think Steffi's making a big fucking mistake. So let's get into the second half of this movie where stuff really starts to fall apart. So you have, you have Benny Blanco here, who's just this kind of street-level guy who's just looking to cause trouble, it looks like. Which seemed at the time for me to be the moment where John Leguizamo was going to be mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. Not that he's not big-ish, but he's not. Unfortunately, he was following this up with Super Mario Brothers the movie, which is a disaster of all disasters. And he's had a few misses in his Crispon and some, I, some films. Like I know that. You, you have something going on, but let me say one thing about him. Mm-hmm. If you watch his one-man show stuff, mm-hmm. the man's a genius. Oh, yeah, he's good. Wildly entertaining. Mm-hmm. Such a good storyteller. Man, this is a case of suffering from terrible agent representation or career choices. As much as this should have launched him to stratosphere, and he's got the look. Yeah. He's got that look. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Super Mario's undid all of it. I think that's the same year as this film. Luigi. 
I know that like the, the we'll do a bad movie cask again. We'll, no, we, we got to talk about that one because Dennis Hopper is King Koopas. Oh my god, Bob Hoskins. Bob Hoskins. That's just a, such a miss. Keep going, Art. Sorry, I yeah. stole your thought. No, no, you're, you're good there. So you got you got that element going, and you know Al Pacino kind of sets him straight, and he, they throw him out, but doesn't kill him, which ends up being a huge mistake later. He's like, I can't go that far again because. I'm not that guy anymore. I'm just try, I'm trying to go legit. I'm trying to run my club. So I'm going to let him go scot-free. Oops. Uh, <laughs> and so then Sean Penn really starts to let his colors show here where he's like, I need a favor, Carlito. You know, I got in kind of deep with this uh, with this uh, mob goss, uh, Tagalucci, uh, and I got to break it. I got to rescue him from prison, and I need help because of you owe me. Because I got you off. So, yeah, I guess I do owe my friend. Because loyalty at the end of the day in these films is kind of what does everyone in. Isn't that right? For sure it is. And there's an internal struggle happening in the film right now. Is this movie about loyalty and friendship? Or is this movie about being villainous enough in your return to the street for long enough that you can ultimately be the good guy? Because not killing Benny Blanco in the alley speaks to the latter. But the rest of the film speaks to the former. I have to pay Kleinfeld this favor back because he's my brother, he's my friend, he got me out yada, 15 times in the film. Mm-hmm. But there's also that other river of conflict that's running at the same time, which is to go legit, I have to be illegitimate long enough to make that a formal action in my life. I like the second idea better. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately... That has a lot to do with Gail, and we've talked about the lack of chemistry, and the former, which would be the friendship, has everything to do with Sean Penn, and that's the space that the movie works. Mm -hmm. So when you take all of that and put it into some film equation, I think you are at a really tough crossroads. The movie should be this because it's more interesting, but the other conflict is more interesting. So essentially, and pardon my language here, but you're fucked. Yeah. You're fucked. And I think it's get some of the things that we're highlighting here. Yeah, definitely. I, you, the, Sean Penn and, and Pacino, they, they, they play well together in, in this film. And so when they're on screen and his pen's just kind of stirring the pot, like I always like that scene where he's like, he's dancing with your girl. He's like, you okay with that? And calls him out and he's just, he's just such a loud mouth. And it was like, hey, do you, um, do you get seasick out on boats? Like, why is he talking about boats, Charlie? And he's like, don't you ever bring up that stuff again. I'll kill you. Uh, he's just so slimy. I mean, and then he's a lawyer. It just fits him so well. Uh, and that the yeah. haircut, the outfit, his office, his mannerisms, he's almost, oh God, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, in the tracksuit. We made fun of the tracksuit, but that fits him too. Sure. This velvety felt green, green Adidas tracksuit with his shyster cheese, with his receding hairline is just, I'm going to try and be cool because, and then Pacino says it's so good. So after the sequence I'm about to play here, he says, you're not a lawyer anymore. You're a gangster. Mm -hmm. And there's no going back from that. Uh, Yeah, I think that speaks volumes about who he's becoming in this film. He's the villain of the film. See, even around that, though, you have the air of legitimacy being swayed by the illegitimate actions that the characters engage in. The movie wants to tell that story, Jesse. To me, it does. Mm-hmm. And even in what you said, there are elements of his relationship, his being Carlito's relationship with Kleinfeld, <clears throat> that play with that. I just feel like it's close. They need to make the conscious decision to put the loyalty piece aside 
which happens naturally in every gangster or mafia or honor among thieves nefarious action film, black market or otherwise. Mm-hmm. That just naturally occurs. And let that happen organically through just the action the characters take and really have that narrative that goes on in Pacino's head be more of how many laws do I need to continue to break in order to go straight? Because then you have a really rising tide of conflict in the character that makes him more likable to the people with a guy who I think is already pretty likable. I gotta say this too. No one bashes a head in better than Brian De Palma because you have it's such oh, a gruesome yeah. scene, but the Untouchables when uh, Robert De Niro with the baseball bat. I, I <laughs> yeah, he, it's just such a great sequence in the in that film. Uh, again, it's it's one of one of his one of his great strengths, and um, we're gonna get to another one of them coming up here in a little bit. But he's right. Yeah, you just, you you screwed us uh, in this instant because in these mob films, when you kill someone that you're not supposed to, you always get that family coming breathing down your back because they want revenge. They want repercussions for what you just did. For the beats of the screenplay, and mm-hmm. to David Kep's credit, this is a great second act reversal. That's his other strength too. Is like you look at the beats of a screenplay, he hits them all, and this is perfect, right? Yeah. So things are much worse than they were when we even started. Not only is he back in, he's back in with a terrible ally who's yeah. more of an anchor than, a, than an ally. And now he's got the mafia after him as well. Not to mention all of the other, Benny Blanco and the feds and everybody else. And to a certain extent, Gail. Like he's going to be at odds with Gail and we're going to see that in just a scene too because they have essentially like a breakup but not def- not a permanent breakup. So yeah, it's a great second act reversal. And when Kleinfeld bashes that guy in the head, you have to just want to shriek at that because they're close to fixing it. If he just if he just gets him out and gets him on the boat and then they get ashore and with Carlito there, you think maybe there's enough protection for both of them to navigate what's coming, which you assume would be a hit mm-hmm. from Tony T's family to finish off Kleinfeld. But with Carlito there and his ability to angle, you know, maybe there's a chance, but we never get there because mm-hmm. Kleinfeld just can't control himself. So uh, coked out, so drugged out, so beady eyed and just bashes that guy's head in. Done really well by De Palma, the great use of blood and the impact. Mm-hmm. So the following scene is uh, the ramifications of what he just did um, at his uh, lawyer office. He's kind of got this phony call like, yeah, something happened to your Mercedes outside. He's like, oh, God, I'll, I'll come down and take care of it. This scene, Matt, is, I'd have to compare the two, uh, but it's almost shot for shot of The Untouchables with Frank Nitti and Charles Martin Smith in the elevator as the the same angles, you know, first person POV, these tracking shots uh, down the hallways, kind of looking up at the the light in the elevator, like when's this thing going to get off? And then looking at who's coming into the frame, who's coming this way, uh, my the close-ups on what's that guy carrying, and then 
not looking at what's in front of you as what comes out of the elevators, this guy with the baseball bat that takes his guy out. And there's then, even the woman that walks down the hall mm-hmm. that they both start ogling, which happens on the untouchables too. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you. Okay. If we've identified this as maybe a start on the decline for De Palma's creativity, is this a recognition of your former greatness or is this an acknowledgement of it's slipping away because I'm out of juice? Ooh. A little bit of both. It's a sequence. Politically correct answer. I know, right? Uh, he's really good at it. This is, it's, it's a good sequence. And as we discussed, this is kind of the downward spiral of of his, his career. I mean, he has Mission Impossible after this and Snake Eyes and whatever that movie is. Black Dahlia. And then, yeah, Mission to Mars and Black Dahlia are going to really do him in. Yeah. But uh, his strengths of, of staging suspense, you mentioned Hitchcock as his primary. Inf- this is just peak Hitchcock. This is a scene out of Vertigo or North, North by Northwest. I'll pick that one. Of just how you build up tension without showing anything. It's people coming into the scene. Uh, it's the visual of a blinking light. It's close-ups of images and newspapers that are adding up to an equation that's not going to click until the elevator doors open. I mean, there's a real genius to that, and it's, it's one something he's so good at. I think this is a little wonky, mm-hmm. but I'm going to answer the question I gave you with an acknowledgement of it sleeping. It's one thing to do it the first time and find a creative way to recognize an influencer in your career. Him doing Hitchcock in his own way. His own way. Yeah. It's another thing to do you doing Hitchcock in a reheat of what you've already done. Yeah. And it still works. Those scenes still work. They're not bad scenes. The tension's high. There's some interesting turns and twists. You just can't help but say, I've seen this before. Because frankly, you've seen it at least twice before mm-hmm. if you're familiar with his work and Hitchcock's mm-hmm. work. So and I don't want to be too hard on the person because you can't in one breath say, I love this sequence in The Untouchables and where it works here and where it works here and then say, but it's damn, you know, I'm going to damn it on this moment. I just think, look, man, everything has a lifespan, Right. Yeah. John Carpenter is a guy we've talked about a lot in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. He fully acknowledges, man, I'm just out of juice. Yeah. I mean, you and I took some, not that who are we, yeah. but some significant time off. Cause I was just out of juice. Like I just couldn't write anymore for a while. You do. You get when you, especially when you get on a, on a streak, like the Palmo, it was Scarface, the untouchables, casualties of war, bonfire of the vanity. That's kind of another miss too. And yeah. then, and then this one. And look, it, every, every, professional field has the person that hangs on a little moment too long. I will give you the final season of breaking bad. Yeah. That's an example of the same thing. But every, and every director has misses. It's David Fincher, Steven Spielberg, Martin. Like they all have like where they're just one of Martin Scorsese's uh, passion projects was that film silence uh, with Andrew Garfield and Liam Neeson, this religious film. It was a film he tried to get made for 30 years and he finally got to make it. And I saw it's the most boring movie you could ever watch. It's, it's not him. It's not what you expect from him. But it's something he wants. So even the greats, they all, they all, Hitchcock slipped up. Oh, yeah. Whether you <laughs> Monday morning quarterback it or hindsight is twenty twenty or backseat driving or whatever metaphor you want to use. I guess the question that it makes me think about, 
in lots of different avenues, mine and other pieces of my life involved in other life, is when you get to that point, is it better to pump the brakes and say, I'm going to let myself recharge? Or do you just go all in one more time with what's left and still produce what's palatable, but not perfect? Mm-hmm. Perfect's a bit bit strong. Ridley Scott needs to ask himself that question that you just posed right there because... It's a tough question though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean... I can sit here and acknowledge that and tell you, oh, from this moral authority, yes, you should probably pump the brick. But that's, and I will, that's bullshit. No one does that. Mm -hmm. No one wants to admit that the better days were yesterday. Oh, no. No, who? Athletes, no, none of them. Yeah. So I'm like, I don't want to bang on this man for that. He's just, he's a human. Mm -hmm. It's strange that this is where the conversation has gone on this. I had no (laughs) idea we were going here. I love it. (laughs) Philosophically, the human condition, right? It's pretty good. I don't begrudge him that. Mm -mm. And I'm going to tell you, no one that I know has seen this movie and like, oh my God, I wanted a refund. <laughs> no, we're banging on it pretty good right now. Yeah. But we're banging on it pretty good, I think, out of respect of what both Pacino and he have been prior. Well, I think this film also made me recollect, and as we ended, I was I kind of listed all the other films of his we could talk about that we haven't talked about, and the guy's got a solid filmography. Mm. Carrie might be arguably the finest Stephen King adaptation, and that's like his like third like or his that's like his first huge film. Yeah. Blowout might be his best film. Uh, I like The Untouchables. We don't get enough Prohibition era gangster films, and that film rocks. I, I like it. I know it's perfect popcorn film. I perfect. like the first Mission Impossible. I mean, De Palma was like, "We're doing a thing of the show." He made an episode of the show with Tom, Cr- and then it became a different series entirely. The I, the guy makes entertaining stuff, and you I miss Sisters. I love Sisters. Right. Yeah, Body Double and Dress to Kill, the most Hitchcocky Hitchcocky film that he never made. Right. Um, the guy's great. Well, we're just kind of talking about. I've seen. I've literally said. I've seen this sequence before. This is Frank Nitti coming into the elevator to kill Charles Martin Smith in 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 the in the Untouchables. It's, I've seen it before. Let me give you one more random thought as you're t- saying that. Okay. There's a definite corollary between Brian De Palma and Cameron Crowe for me. Okay. And what I would argue is where it's violence for De Palma, it's music for Crow. And you can see around Elizabeth Town, where Cameron Crow really starts to take on some water. And then from that point, it's just miss after Aloha, after, you know, because I mean, there's moments in we Cameron. Bought, we bought a zoo. Right? Yeah. Because for all of We Bought a Zoo, there is Jerry Maguire and Singles and Vanilla Sky, which I think is brilliant. Mm-hmm. I know that's debatable, but whatever. It's not a bad film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have a very similar trajectory. Yeah. Which is really different than like Shemilan. Right? Oh. Those are re- like really wildly different kind he's, of stories. He's a roller coaster. Right. <laughs> so whereas I'm like, maybe you should pump the brakes and figure out how to wait to make it out, you know, make it work with your ex-wife who's the guitarist of heart, because she's awesome. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. Maybe you should <sighs> I could talk. There about, is no formula. I could talk about directors all day and like just like. To me, Spielberg's a big one because arguably maybe the most important director of all time. Who started out with like just kind of Duel and Sugarland Express, and then hit the stratosphere with Jaws, and then oh my god, uh, Close Encounters, uh, that's all right, and then 1940, oh god, I'm going downhill, and then man, Indiana Jones, we're back, E.T., oh my god, and then we're just like. 
And then he does Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And then he finds himself in a new space. And then he's like a different filmmaker after that. Amistad and Saving Private Ryan and more cerebral type of films. And he kind of is not the fun blockbuster guy anymore. The Terminal. And then you kind of get into the misses with, with him too. So they all have it. It's. I just think kept paired with De Palma has potential for great disaster. And I would argue more on the disaster side than the success side. Despite all that that we've said, there are a lot of good things happening in this film. Let's get to another Let's one. Let's get right to a here. good one. Yeah. It's the Kleinfeld. There's a delivery for you, Mr. Kleinfeld. From who? From my father and my brother. Adios, counselor. Again, it, it feels like a scene from The Untouchables, whether it's, it's the music that, that does it for me, but let's kind of catch up here. So Al Pacino and Gail have had a blowout on the street here, and she says, I'm pregnant, but I'm not going to have this child if the father's not going to be around, and your lifestyle doesn't fit that quota for me. He's picked up by the district attorney who says, hey, we got a recording you might want to take a listen to, and it's Kleinfeld being a bastard, just telling lie after lie to kind of save his own skin. And they offer uh, Carlito a pretty sweet deal. Hey, we're going to give you immunity and this. You just got to testify against it. You got to do us one. And because of that loyalty aspect is just so crucial for him, he doesn't go through with it. He's got to do it on his own terms. So he goes to the the hospital, sees the gun. Hey, you don't want to keep the gun under your pillow. You got to have it here. That way they come to the door, you're ready. And then looks like he's going to kill him there, but he's like, nah, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to let it happen on its own fruition and takes the bullets, tosses them as he just kind of gets blown away by the family of the the, the, the dad that he just killed. It's a great sequence. I, I love it. It's a great sequence. So this works really good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And back we're back in that really entering space of loyalty versus legitimacy and illegitimacy. Because if he sings to the DA... The DA promises him exactly what he's asking for. Two tickets to Bahama, essentially witness protection, turn in Kleinfeld, away you go. Yeah, Great deal. Great deal. Mm-hmm. And kind of what he's been after. Yep. Almost to the letter, right? You even said, God, why wouldn't you take that deal? Yeah, Especially because Kleinfeld's such a prick. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's back in that I need to be illegitimate long enough to go legitimate. So what's posed, what's set on the plate before him is I'm offering you a federal illegitimate moral practice, sing on your friends for a chance to go legit. And he says no because he's more loyal than ambitious. That is so complex and very interesting for me. Mm -hmm. And I love that she is with him for all that because all sins are revealed now. And she's okay with it. <laughs> so she's like, she's like, take the deal. So uh, right, and the, so that's the other thing too. You just, you just took the words right out of my mouth. Gail has an edge mm-hmm. at moments in this film. She strips. She's okay with the guy who's killed people. Right after the postcoital pillow talk discussion is, tell me about the people you've killed. Not probably the way that most of us engage. She's got an edge. Oh, I just, it's so, it's all around it, Jesse. Yeah, they're dancing. It's all around it, isn't it? It's just not ever quite. 
grabbed and ridden home. We do get now to the probably the the best sequence of the entire film. So he gets her train ticket saying, get on this train. We're going to Miami. We're going to make this happen. Um, I'm just, I got to go get my cash that my 75,000. And it's just one barrier after barrier for him. As he comes in, it's this, this, this mob guy that he hasn't like seen in forever. He knows he has ties to this guy that they killed in the East river. And he's just like, Oh God. He's like, he's like, I got to get away from them. And then they took his money and there's like, where's my money? It's under the desk. And it's just like, God, how many obstacles do I have to go through? In one of the best kind of drawing out, and again, it's one of De Palma's great things that he does. When uh, Carlito's getting the money out of the safe underneath the sink, which has a trap door that goes to like an out and outway through the kitchen, they do a great pull in of the the son of like him at the table who wants to just cap him right now. It pulls into him as we pull into the the bar, and it's just this space. I'm like, where is he going? And it's De Palma's so good at the dramatic pull in of a camera. Like he's done it in so many of his films. It's a it's a great strength of his. I, I love this when he goes there, and no one's there. He he escaped, and then it's this chase. It's this it's this French Connection like type of chase through the streets, through the subway, on and off a train, and then through this uh, train station where we're back in familiar territory. But it all works for me. I think this is this is a great ending to the, a great end sequence to the film. It works for me too. And you do want him to make a few mistakes because you want to keep the tension high. Like he could just take a cab to a different train station and they would never find him. But that's not fun. It's all in the chase. And yeah. De Palma does a good chase. Oh, like yeah. It, it, it's something blowout and dress to kill. They all... He's the way he just stages them. I mean, he knows how to set the pieces and then lets the camera do the work through through the setting. A lot of long takes, a lot of pull ins, a lot of close ups. Oh, I think of the one on the train there where he's um, is it like the Port Authority that like comes on and he's like he like puts his gun away and then notices the gun on there. He's like, he's like, if I start to shoot out, these guys are going to start shooting. So let me kind of stay behind them and I'll go out with them. Um, oh, it's it's great. Yeah. Using balloons as cover, hiding mm, behind mm-hmm. pillars, ducking on the escalator so that you're not seen. All that works really good. And he's almost to, to, to home base and then this. If it was done in slow motion, I'd have to knock him down a peg because that is the untouchables and that sequence is what it is. Uh, but this is great. I love that he's laying on this escalator. The guy sees him from above and he's like, oh, God, I, I got to kill this guy now. He's going to blow my cover. So takes him out and then it's just a shit show after that. <laughs> For everything that Jesse Eisenberg speaks about in Zombieland regarding cardio and how important that is. It's working in exact opposite fashion for oh, this really, really fat mafia guy. That's funny. That's so poorly out of shape, he can't even keep up and doggone it if it doesn't pay off. He gets killed, but it reveals Carlito. That shot, that's the fat Goomba thug guy's POV watching Carlito go down the escalator as he's laying there is such a fantastic delivery mm-hmm. and reveal. But unfortunately, it blows his cover. So you get a nice shootout, mm-hmm. and we like shootouts on escalators, whether it be 
baby carriages, Battleship Potemkin, mm-hmm. or whatever the hell the end of the Black Dahlia is. Like we've seen that. <laughs> whatever right? the hell the end. Right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Corridors and escalators and stairways and all that. Like, <laughs> but it makes sense that that's a fun place to shoot in. And there's lots of places to hide and mm-hmm. levels of variance regarding what you see. Like it works perfectly. Yeah. This final, what, 15 minutes? Yeah. Is really good. Yeah. And film greatness in a movie that I think we've kind of banged around a little bit. This is really, really entertaining, good stuff. And this is the part where I wish we hadn't seen the end here because as he's making for the train, it's like this last ditch effort and he's about to get on. And this guy with Luis Guzman is like, who is this guy? And you kind of get glimpses. Like, it's great how they just kind of tease him. Like, oh, that guy looks kind of familiar. And then boom, Benny Blanco from the Bronx. Three in the chest, and he created his own undoing. Carlito did in his own morals of I want to go legit, I want to do it on my own terms, I'm not going to go that path again. And in doing so, creates his own death, which is the tragic notion of this film. I mean, it's great. I mean, it ends the way any number of these mob movies do end, which is a bloodbath. <laughs> I think the tragedy is a little bit underplayed because you've already seen what eventually happens. Uh, yeah, well said. I wish it wasn't revealed already. Mm-hmm. That's my that's my issue. Like, if you want to start with him running up to Gale and there's this moment of happiness, and then that's where we stop in the, the, the pre-telling of the story to open, you just know he's not going to make it, man. And I hate that. Mm-hmm. I hate the end reveal given away. I do, yeah. Um, you know, you should open up your Christmas presents on Christmas Day, not, <laughs> not Christmas Eve, not to get all Kevin Costner and Bull Durham on you. But you know what I mean? I'm a Christmas Eve guy, man. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, not in film. Yeah, not on film. Uh, so the he dies. Him and Gail have a nice kind of closing of that, and he sees the essentially her dancing at the Bahamas with this new life that she's going to have as he dies out in the subway here. With blood money. With blood money, exactly. Uh, a couple things here, and then I have a couple questions for you, Matt. $30 million budget, uh, it's pretty pricey for a movie like this. Yep. Uh, $64 million gross, so yeah, kind of made back. It's kind of lukewarm from the critics, though, when this came out. Mm-hmm. But this film has developed a bit of a cult following, and that seems to be the mob genre in general. I mean, look at The Godfather, Goodfell, and Scarface, of all films, have huge loyal cult audiences that just adore those movies i mean it's a very loyal audience (laughs) i think the two most germane films to the american story are the western and the mafia film um there's they're both wildly romanticized with rules and codes colors and they both sort of work around in the same premise that idea of savage versus civilized and you're right there is never a shortage for another mob film coming. And I kind of feel like we're about due. Oh yeah. Aren't we? Oh uh, yeah. It's been a little while. Like we're about due for a really good one again. I'm sure one's coming. I was probably one in development somewhere. I'm not sure, but I would imagine it's time. Oh yeah. I, I, they I never get old. I feel the same way too. And they're going to be like that, that and boxing films, they're going to be really formulaic and sometimes they're even tied together. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But, um, sometimes they're made by the same director. Martin Scorsese. <laughs> exactly. It's just time. It's time. The most interesting little bit of, uh, trivia that I found out. So Pacino first read these novels and, and met the author back in 1973. So we're talking about post Godfather. Like he like was kind of already got the wheels in motion to get this thing made. It took another 20 years. 
But uh, he was sued in 1989 because I guess maybe he had promised another producer, Elliot Kastner, that he had um, was going to make it, and then he had to back out. But guess who they had in line to play Kleinfeld? Who? Marlon Brando. Oh wow, that could have been messy. Messy. The, that's, the, that's the appropriate word. I mean, it's a better choice. Brando was way past his prime at that point, and he was like about to go so off the deep end with with his. Uh, yeah, just his persona. Uh, have you ever seen the direct-to-DVD prequel "Carlito's Way: Rise to Power"? No, but I own this DVD at home, and it's on there. I've oh, never, I've just I never have, seen. It. I haven't seen it either. So that's it. supposed to be, I think, the adaptation of "Carlito's Way" the novel, whereas this one's uh, "After Hours" the book. So mm-hmm. I, I would like to kind of see what that's all about. Yeah, maybe I'm I should sure explore that too. I'm sure it's not as good as. <laughs> You lost me a direct to DVD. Oh God, yeah, that's oh, that's a bad word. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, Matt, what's your favorite tasting note of Carlito's Way? I think it's probably the just mentioned elevator sequence or escalator sequence. Mm-hmm. Good that's, stuff. That's just really De Palma being him in charge of his craft and presenting something in a very interesting way. Mm-hmm. It looks cool. He's hidden, and the way it's revealed is set up perfectly. That guy's been trailing the action the whole scenario. Probably that moment. There's other ones, too. Like, I like some of the club scenes. I think anytime you have a movie set in a club, that's why I partly love the 25th hour so much. That's a very interesting bit, but it's it's the escalator bit by just a little bit. And have we not talked about how rocking this soundtrack is in this movie? Right. Good stuff. Yeah. What's yours? I want to go the escalator too, but I do like that first bit in the little dive bar act violent action bit. I mean, that's peak De Palma. It's got the camera work that just fits him so well. It's really good. I just wish there was more of that. It is a bit of a slow burn type of movie. And if we had a little bit more of those moments, I think I'd like it just a little bit more, but that, that first one's excellent. I love it. Yeah. What's the moment of this movie where we need to have some more Amador whiskey to cleanse our palate. Mine's actually going to be um, a good one. And it's the moment when he takes the bullets from, from Sean Penn's gun. I mean, that's just such a, it's he, he does away with him in the way that he wants to without pulling the trigger himself. But the way it's kind of revealed to us is pretty well done. Yeah. That's a good choice. So it's a good, Oh my God moment. Yeah, I think my oh my god moment is when Sean Penn takes the crowbar to Tony T's head. You're so close to getting out of it, and you make this terrible decision. Just like, oh no, why? Yep. I think that's mine. Who's the master distiller on Carlito's way? Oh man, do you want to go? Do you have yours? Kind of. <laughs> I want to hear you first. <laughs> I think it's Sean Penn. Okay, he's really good in this. Um. Look, De Palma's De Palma. Mm-hmm. Pacino's Pacino. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before Pacino became Pacino, sure. right? The beginning of the Pacino is going to be Pacino. But Sean Penn's really good in this film. That is a very hateable character that he creates. And to actively root against him, this isn't quite Marsha Gay Harden in The Mist, getting shot and everybody mm, in the God, theater great cheering. Great character. Great character. Mm-hmm. But it's not far from it. He is really hateable. Good choice. Good performance. Yeah. Who's yours? 
think I got to go De Palma. Okay. I mean, uh, the, the, this kind of this episode seems like we had him on the pyre. And it was like, how dare you, De Palma? But no, I don't, I don't think so at all. I think what this viewing of this made me realize is how much I actually like De Palma's movies. And I think he's a very understated director of that era. I mean, he should be in the same breath of a Scorsese and Spielberg and Coppola. And I don't think he gets his just desserts um, as often as he should. I mean, he's a very talented filmmaker uh, and he's on point here. I mean, one of his things was he's like, I don't want to do Scarface again. So he had hesitation to doing this. But as he kind of got deeper into Kep's screenplay, uh, he's like, oh, no, there's a way to make this different than that movie. And they are different. It is different. And thankfully for that. Mm-hmm. How are you going to rate and grade Carlito's Way? We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. What are you going to go? Call. Maybe bordering on Call Plus. Um, for as much as we've been hard on it, it's pretty clear that that criticism has come from a position that at least made us think about it. That's that's a vote for it. Mm-hmm. And if you put it back on again now, I'd be willing to watch it again. Like I this, I think this movie is infinitely rewatchable. Sure. Uh, despite some of the missteps, it's still a really good, entertaining film. I love gangster movies, and Pacino is good in it. It looks good. There's just more of the frustration from what almost was, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that it wasn't there at all. Yeah. So call. Yeah, I'm in the almost call plus I'll go. Yeah. It's close to being pretty great. Uh, I think I think it's better than Scarface, which that'll be a whole conversation for that particular episode. I just tried, I, I think I'm grading it in the curve of other gangster movies, this whole genre. Um, where you have Godfathers and Goodfellas and some really great um, classic films. And it's just not in the league of those movies. Like, it's it's close, but not quite. There's a few things that, that hang it up for me. But like you, it, it very, very enjoyable, very watchable. Uh, it's Pacino before he went, goes full Pacino. And this De Palma still churning out something decent. So call plus for me. It's a good watch. If you haven't seen it, you should at least check it out. Yeah. Uh, it's not streaming on anything, so you're going to have to rent it like we did, but uh, pretty decent. It's a good couple hours to spend if you've got some time to kill. Enjoy it. Sit down and just enjoy it. To that. To that. To enjoying films. <laughs> to enjoying films. <laughs> well, let's wrap this up with a nightcap. You are so Joe Cocker. <laughs> yeah. Would you say he was like great singer, but you never want to watch it visually? Oh my gosh. That is a guy who is physically involved in every note he sings, isn't he? Mm-hmm. But he's got some, some great pipes. Excellent. Hit us with the nightcap, Matt. So it essentially is your favorite movie scenario in a black market setting. Um, Look, all these gangster films highlight the black market. So that's what I want you to do is pitch me and I'll pitch you. My favorites. Yeah. I have two. Okay. One, uh, again, we, we, we could cover this one if we truly wanted to, but uh, 
it has to do with counterfeiting. And your counterfeiter in this one is Mr. Willem Dafoe, who just chews the scenery. Of course, I'm talking To Live and Die in L.A. by Mr. William Friedkin. Uh, I think that's a pretty underrated movie with William Peterson. Uh, and uh, maybe I like that movie, Matt. Maybe just because I like the, the theme song by Wang Chung. To Live and Die in L.A. It's like, I just think that's a really fun movie. But to kind of couple that with another black market movie that's more recent, and I know like no one has seen this movie, and it's a damn shame, and it's called American Animals. Now, Matt, I've never seen a movie like this, but to just kind of sum it up for you, it's a film about these college students who heist uh, an art gallery and then hope to pawn it off on the black market. Yeah, we've seen that before. Based on a true story, but the film is part narrative, part documentary. So while you're watching the film unfold, you're seeing the actual people that did the crime do testimonial documentary interwoven with narrative cinema. And I've never seen that before. That's cool. And what's cool about it is some of the real life counterparts contradict each other's story. And you see that unfold on film. And it's it's kind of really cool. So check it out. It has Evan Peters uh, in it. And no, I don't, I don't think I've heard anyone talk about it. It was a fun watch. And it's and it wasn't bigger than it what it needed to be a true life story with a twist. It's good. Those are my two. Okay, honorable mention quickly is the hustler. I'm not sure how deep we want to get into what's legal or how bad gambling is, but okay, that's the honorable mention. Okay, and then the other two. The first one is the sting. Uh, again, going back to the look, that's a really really well designed film. And then the other one is one that a lot of people missed that I think is really, really an interesting film with Robert De Niro and Mickey Rourke. It's called Angel Heart. Mm. I don't want to give too much away in that. I actually don't even want to talk about it because (laughs) I want people to see it for themselves and just stare in starry-eyed wonder at what they've just witnessed. Yeah. Um, And then there's another one that's close here uh probably doesn't beat either of those other two but like honorable mention c is before the devil knows you're dead oh yes right man you turned me on to that one it's such a good film. is that sydney lamette's last movie mm-hmm. <sighs> pretty close to um philip seymour hoffman's last film oh, too i think God. maybe not close but yes. not quite but close oh that one <laughs> that that's isn't we that should hurt, do that that hurts me his name just in retrospect, such a talented actor. That movie's that movie brought Albert Finney and Ethan Hawke. Hell yeah, yeah. Sign me, sign me up. <laughs> that, yeah, we could have gone down a, a lot of mass holes. That, but of all those that we just talked about, sounds like there's some serious recommendations. It's got some stuff to watch this weekend. Good, yeah, people, I, I hope people take away from this show. Like, I know the film proper is Carlito's way, but please seek out any of these these other films. Like, like I can't. I hate when people shy away from trying new things in any wakes of life, food, uh, uh, excursions or vacation or whatever, but film most of all, because if you are so close minded, you miss out on so many things that you never know you might like. The currency in film is the volumes of things that you've seen. Mm -hmm. That's what we trade in. That's the monetary unitary exchange is knowledge of. Yeah. And what a fun way to make money. Yeah. Sit down and watch it. And you have to be a gambler in the film world. You have to be willing to take chances on, I know that might not be for me, but I got to check it out. 
because you never know when you're going to be so pleasantly surprised by something. And then you're like, oh, wow, like, I'm glad I, ch- I'm glad I sought that out. Well, I guarantee the seven films that we've discussed, Carlito's Way and then the six and the nightcap <laughs> are all way better than minimum wage paying endeavors. There you go. So there you go. Excellent. Well, that's Carlito's Way from 1993. Uh, continuing on this train next week, Matt, we're going to talk about another uh pair of directors that we haven't done a film and that's shocking to me actually because we could come back to their well time and time again but in continuing with uh the turf war theming of this cask we're going to be looking at miller's crossing from 1990 i believe yeah mr gabriel byrne (laughs) we're not talking about his other mob movie that he made but no this is good i can't wait to talk about the coen brothers uh, in their this effort and it's Coen Brothers before they were full on Coen Brothers like they're still in that noir space that uh, they were so good, simply so good at in in, in their uh, infancy so I've only seen this once oh uh, I don't know if I loved it the first time I saw it I was a bit lukewarm but I think I just need to get back in there again I need to get in the weeds with Miller's Crossing <laughs> I struggle with the heavy Irish accent films that's a really tough dialect for me to decode so maybe i'm not kidding yeah we might need to watch it with the subtitles on i'm really not kidding you so i can understand it i'm with you it's a one-time view for me Mm -hmm. and it wasn't even all the way through in one viewing so i might check this out one time before we go next weekend just so there's a bit more familiarity with it yeah it's going to be an interesting ride because i know this film is wildly loved by Cohen brothers fans. Okay. So maybe we have a departure next week. Maybe. Well, it'll be, this will, this will be fun. Yeah. So you have that coming. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to get going. I'm going to go, I'm going to go throw on some of that Carlito's way soundtrack. Cause you know me, I love this disco music at art. <laughs> While you're at it, don't forget the pieces in that that are also his, which is the Fania, the salsa stuff that is. Oh, that was good too. One more quick recommendation. Usually we have some zinger one liner here. Check out El Cantante if you like that music. Okay. That's Mark Anthony and J-Lo in an amazing movie that no one saw. Excellent. Check it out. Cheers to you all, and we'll see you next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Carlito's Way is property of Universal Pictures and Epic Productions, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. It's okay. It's going to be okay. Hey, remember me? Benny Blanco from the Bronx? Oh. <laughs>